This is Show Up as a Leader, a show from People Forward Network, helping you maximize your positive impact on the world by becoming your best, fully authentic self. I think you are going to get so many incredible nuggets from my conversation with the amazing Guillaume Viat. He is a strategy consultant and leadership coach who guides CEOs and founders to align people and accelerate innovation and adoption. And he has such an incredible journey. And you're one, you're just going to love listening to him with his fabulous French accent. And he gives a really important distinction between storytelling and the function of it and where it comes from and what it does versus narrative. And again, what it does, the function. And he talks at some point about really moving from storytelling to story doing. And we talk about how people and organizations can really bridge this gap between story and narrative and the types of stories we tell and the power of we and looking forward and being authentic and just so many wonderful things here. I think you're going to get a ton out of it. And I encourage you to think about what are the stories you're telling in your life? What are the stories you're telling in your organization? And are they aligned with the narrative you're trying to create and who you're trying to be? And if not, how can you close that gap? Take a listen. I think you're going to enjoy it. How about I start with a story, Rosie? I love it. (laughs) I was in my late 20s as a young consultant in France. So I'm French and I've worked for the first part of my career in France. And I got assigned to a project with a large energy company, 27, 28 at the time. And the goal of this project is to help this company save a project on which they poured a lot of money at the time. It was 2001, right at the dot-com boom. And I go in thinking that they, they need some technical assistance with their project. That's, that was the scope of the project. And in the first 30 minutes with the head of procurement of this 80,000 employee company, I mean, the boardroom with the, these this guy and engineers and, and, a, and a big group of people, and I realized this project is stuck not because of technical problems, as they state, but because people can't hear each other. People can't work together. But apparently, they either deny it or can't see it or don't want to do anything about it. And very quickly, I think I have two options. I can just pretend nothing is happening and not I recognize the elephant in the room or do something. What could I do? And so I thought, okay, what about if I ask them to pick a piece of paper and draw the project? I asked, could you go all close your laptops? Let's just draw the project. And so they looked at me with weird eyes and they all drew the project. And guess what? All the drawings are obviously, I mean, it's so obvious obvious now, but at the time I was wondering what would happen. All the drawings are different. So we put them on the board, on the whiteboard with magnets on the side. And the drawings did the rest. And I, I realized that day how the crucial importance of sharing something together, what that something is, I couldn't really label it or name it at the time, but I call it a strategic narrative. So that story was kind of the defining moment of everything I kept doing for the following 21 years now, or 2022. And I decided at first that this experience was really going to shift something important, give me a focus. I didn't know what to explore then. It turns out we made this project work. 
And what I spent my time doing with this team for the following year, about 12 years after that, was not only help them on the technical part, but also, and most importantly, bring them together around a set of beliefs, values, processes, things they would really share clearly. And the way we did this was to go back in time and pull the stories that define this project and how they work together. And there, there are some very positive, very beneficial stories that needed to be unearthed and clarified and brought forth. And there are some very limiting stories that they kind of had forgotten in the mix. Since then, I make the, the difference between a story and a narrative because to me, narratives are systems of stories. I, I then went on to research, what, what is that storytelling thing that everybody talks about? And that's been really a phenomenon in business for the past, what now, 15, 20 years or so-ish. And read all the books, well, I mean, not all, but the common books about storytelling. And we all see the story arc. And it's very much borrowed from what the movie industry is using. You know, there is a beginning and the middle and an end. And I practiced that for many, many years until I realized that really what we're trying to do here is not just be better storytellers, but really make people work together in, in a much more efficient way, much more human way. And the way you do this is by creating a new narrative. First of all, narrative has a beginning, a middle, but no end. It's future focused. It's the way we work together. If you look at it, you know, just go to the dictionary and you will notice that the, the difference between the stories is very subtle, but major. A narrative supports a specific point of view. So when you have companies who are trying to change how a market works or, or you're trying to even internally change the way your organization works, we say we have to have a different story. I think we misuse the word story. We're, we're, we're confused with this term. And thinking in terms of a narrative makes a difference between having all the stories from the past. You know, there are recounts of events. Once upon a time, I was there, I was doing this. Here was the problem. Here's how we solved it. And the end is great result. That's the typical arc for a story. So when you leverage that force, what you're building is a new understanding for how things should work. That's what true innovators do. If you look at major brands, Red Bull, Harley Davidson, all the big brands who've really left an important footprint on our society. That's the mode that they operate in. They build, even you know, if you look at religious institutions, governments, social movements, they're all driven by a narrative that is fueled by thousands and thousands and thousands of stories. So that's really how I see the world. Oh my gosh, my head is spinning. And I, there's so many things about that that we could unpack, like probably for hours. But so I appreciate that. If you look at Simon Sinek's work, for example, of what is the process of a company finding its why? Or you as an individual finding your why? Your why exists, right? It's based on stories of, for so for companies will say, well, tell stories of when you've been the most proud to work here. And so you talk about it's that recount of past events and you start to look for the common themes and the common patterns and really looking at what are the key behaviors in that and the why exists in that and the hows or those behavioral anchors also exist in that, right? And so in the work we do, we call that building a lighthouse. It's shining the light of like, okay, that this helps us know how to show up. But then the other thing that Simon Sinek talks about in some of his more recent work is that the why is past focus, right? It's like the origin story and your why doesn't change. But then he talks about a just cause and the just cause is, is future focus. Like if you're living your why, what are you trying to achieve? And he said, you could have several just causes or your just cause 
could change, but your why doesn't change. So as I'm listening to you and I'm trying to kind of go, how does this fit into other people or what we do? It sounds like, but tell me if I'm not getting this correctly. It sounds like the storytelling is really is part of that process of understanding of, if you will, like, let's find like kind of who we are, our purpose, get that clear. And then we're going to use that to feed into. So who do we want to be in the world? Where do we want to go? And then we have to have alignment around that just cause or that narrative, because just to know who we are or why doesn't do a lot of good if we're not clear of where we're headed. I think you said it perfectly, Rosie. What I would just add is that this distinction is a model that helps people make more sense of what they mean by story. Which story do you want to talk about? And this distinction here just adds another layer of structure for when you go in that process. Of course, I know the work of Simon Sinek. I'm all about this why. But I found that his approach is very, very, you know, great philosophically, but still needs support to activate it, you know, to make it uh, actionable, to implement it. And so as I also am a supporter of this, of this message, the way I activate it is starting by making the difference here. And I hear it all the time, you know, when I, I get in touch with companies such as Microsoft is a great, great example. I'm here in Seattle. I get, you know, to work with them and they go, can you tell us, tell our story? I'm like, right, let's start. Which story? Well, our story. And I go, well, you don't have a story. You have thousands of stories. So which one? <laughs> so that that's a, you see it right in the, in the language. So this conversation is a little meta here, Rosie, <laughs> but... We're talking stories about stories, but just in the language, you know, the narrative about storytelling, we say, let's tell our story. I think just right there, we should start by making this distinction. Let's tell our narrative based on our stories. That's the difference here. I just published an, uh, a short ebook, and I have this diagram in this ebook that just shows how I visually represent it so that people can actually see it. I do this mapping with companies all the time. I have another client here on the West Coast who's a network infrastructure company. And we have this big board in the boardroom of this company. I meet, I, and I've been meeting with them every week to structure this narrative. They have different initiatives that they are trying to be on the sales front, on the development front. And we have this big board. And then many times we turn to the board and say, which story are we trying to leverage or create here or remember or brought in the forefront of our activity so that it reinforces the narrative of this company. And the narrative of this company is about better, more efficient uh, work for retailers who have, or trying to make, so I'm going to try to not go too technical, but they're trying to use what's called the internet of things. And so that's a new narrative for these people. That's a new way to work that they don't understand. And the narrative of my client is to come in with solutions to make sense of that. Well, one, I, I'm a firm believer that you're right. Language is so important in how we say words and because they matter. Like Our language shapes our experiences. Language can humanize. Language can dehumanize. It's, it, it's so, so important. And so I think what I love in the ebook that you put out is, and this was super helpful for me, is you give some really important distinctions. And so I want to see if you can elaborate on this. But a couple that I wrote down that stood out to me is you talk about, you say stories engage narratives mobilize. Can you just talk about that difference a little bit more? If you look at a, at a story, so I can go, I can go buy a book, I can listen to a podcast, I can go watch a movie or listen to a friend's story. And so uh, we say a story as an audience. These type of language implies that we are probably, we're just listeners here at first. We could actively be listening, but it's not 
a given that will do something about the story that we talk about. When you have a narrative and you leave things open-ended and you invite people to mobilization, to participation, well, there you go. You just turn them into active participant of something they can do. So you give them a role. So you should have a cause, as Sinek says. I call it also the big opportunity because it's something that is valid for a community of people. And so when I say this, stories engage and narrative mobilize, I also make the observation that we want to engage people because we feel like our role is to cut through the noise or have a better hook and make people excited about something. And I feel like this is a little bit superficial. We tend to think about storytelling as the job of marketing to just bring us more people, like talent, bring us more customers, whatever it takes. And that unfortunately leads to behavior that are very close to manipulation sometimes. And a good example is, so I teach a class at the University of Washington every year. And the first question I ask the, the students of this MBA program is, okay, everybody has heard about telling their story in entrepreneurship. And I see all the head nods and I go, what is a story for you? And many of them will tell me it's making up something. It's pretending, it's covering the truth, spinning our reality. So it's bending things. And so I think this phase in the way we do business storytelling that I, co I call business storytelling 101 is kind of dead. We've overused it. And people are realizing we're about truth here and authenticity. So make us the participant of the way you work, of the cause that you defend, of the narrative that you're trying to shape, of the new way a society, economy, whatever you're working on should work. That's what people demand. Look around. That's what we just experienced times a thousand between 2020 and now. And so that's another layer of differences here between stories who engage and narratives who should really mobilize your community. We always say it's one thing to help a person or a company find their why. It's a whole other game to help them live it. So we start to put practices into place and training and equip people with a common language common skill set and tools to help them have those stories not be one-off anomaly experiences, but it becomes like the day-to-day -day where these stories could be told day in, day out, right towards something. And so what I love about this is when you talk about it mobilizes, it's, yeah, we can have these stories, but if people are frustrated because they say, well, that's great, but that happened two years ago and I haven't seen an example of our why being realized since, there's a gap between who we were and who we are and who we're trying to be. And so I'm curious when you think about, okay, if the stories and the why are kind of a collection of what brought us to here and the narrative is a collection of those stories and where we're trying to go, how do you help bridge the gap from the stories to the narratives so that they work together well? So I'd like to respond to this question in the context in which I operate, right? Which is innovation. So I'm all about strategy, innovation. I'm here to help design better companies. And when I say better companies, it's not just better products, it's better, better products, organizations, cultures, and leadership that work together in, in a more symbiotic manner. But it's all about, we're trying to think about something new. So the way a new narrative materializes itself is very often in my world, is very looked at in, in terms of also the product, the, the, the offering. How do we do something? And it's often called disruption. 
but I tend not to use that word too much because I think there is a lot of mis misunderstanding about disruption. So I, I, I keep in my lane, <laughs> but it's also the lane next to me is called disruption. And so relieving this narrative is often expressed in terms of how do we help our clients differently? If we have to uh, make decisions in terms of product design, ethical choices in terms of how we develop an app, say, or, or a new website, how do we make the connection between our, these decisions and what we think and the why of the company? So it's really going from the why to the how to the what. It's really that chain of, of even that I'm talking about. And the way in the work that I do, I have a phase called narrative activation that we do very quickly in parallel with narrative construction, which is more of the design and the thinking phase. And I, I keep finding new ways. I, I have hundreds of ways you can activate your narrative. And I show them to my clients to illustrate what are all the creative ways you could do that. One of my peer and colleagues on the East Coast has a way to also call this story doing. There is storytelling and then there is story doing. And so what we look at here constantly is the gap or the connection between your talk and your walk. And if you are inside the organization, if you are inside a company and you're constantly busy and working on something, it's very easy to lose sight of that connection. So most of the work of building a strategic narrative is looking at this connection. If you just focus on telling and writing and putting things on the website, that's a great North Star. That's a great first step. But then how do you live it? That's, an, that's a whole other, <laughs> that is the, the hidden piece of the iceberg there. Can you give a, a couple examples that people might be able to think about for themselves or for their own organizations in terms of how do they move from the story telling to the story doing? Something essential is to not think that this is a process that has to be just owned by one person or this is not just a marketing department stuff. Typically, it's orchestrated, it's facilitated. At least it's a responsibility of the leadership of a company. That's what their job should be about. But you should include people in the construction and the activation of your narrative. So co-creation is an essential phase for that. It's an essential approach for that. We quote Margaret Wheatley all the time, but we always say people only support what they've helped to create. So if you're going to create something and shove it down to them and want them to adopt it versus they were part of it. Yeah. So I love that co-creation. And I don't think we think about that enough. So a great example of the work I did a few years ago with one of the subsidiaries of Alaska Airlines, where we, we wanted a new narrative. This company was faced with competition, internal problems to a lack of belief in what the company stood for, really. And co-creation was really one of the core pillars and principles of this work. And we literally brought in the same room the whole workforce, almost close to 3,000 employees. Of course, not at the same time because this airline needed to still operate, but we, we batched them carefully, right? We had cohorts, but we literally brought everyone in the same room. And the goal was to come out of these uh, sessions with ideas to how we activate this new narrative that we all want. And so out of this exercise, we came up with a set of, I can't remember exactly, 20 or 30 new initiatives that people wanted to volunteer to own. So it was a big cultural and organizational shift as well. But people wanted to own them. They wanted to defend them. Some of them were internal. Some of them were external. There were new uh, facets of their service, new products, new innovative ideas that they wanted to offer to their customers to revive this company at the heart. So that work took a while, but then that branch of Alaska Island just took off so strongly after that. It's just 
fabulous to see even people's body language, faces, the conversations they they had. Of course, he was not all positive and just all nice and sweet. There are some tough moments too, uh, you know, facing reality, being, being authentic. But the CEO was ready for that and the leadership team was ready for that. So we engaged in that work. That's so fantastic. And we talk about this actually in our both of our books, but we talk about including everybody in the process. So if you're going to do culture visioning work or like I said, work our own in I think there's a lot of parallels with the culture vision, what we call culture vision and what you're calling crafty and strategic narrative. I think there's probably a lot of similarities, but we always say like, you need to include people in the process, right? Because you need to understand their experience and we'll get a lot of pushback. Well, oh my gosh, you know, we have 3000 employees or 5,000 employees or 200 employees. It doesn't even matter the amount. And people start to literally from the logistics say, there's no way in heck we could do that. And even if we did cohorts, they just start thinking about time and expense and oh my gosh. And so they try to do a subset. Well, let's just get this small group that represents others and it doesn't go as well. And so when we say, no, no kidding, like you need to include everybody in the process if you're wanting them to help buy in. And what I love about what you shared about this is that it makes a huge difference when you have a company that gets it. And yes, it takes investment up front and it takes some creative genius around logistics and operations to include everybody. But like you said, they're taking off. The cost of not including everybody feels like so much excess, unnecessary struggle. So the work that you, you guys are doing is so, so critical. It's so important. And just, just what you stated is, I think it's the, kind of the linchpin, the thing that this whole conversation is about. Many people will think, okay, again, I'm going back to this false assumption that I'm trying to debunk that a narrative is about what goes on the website. It's the outside layer of the company where they, they think of it in terms of branding. And I say, no, it starts from the inside. The most compelling market leaders, the best market leaders I've seen don't always have a great website. In fact, I'm, I can think of one called Birdsorg in the Netherlands. You go to their website, it's, sorry, it's, this is a really bad website. This company is just fabulous. They're just growing very, very quickly. And they brought so much positivity around them. They started as a 10 or 12 people group, not even 10 years ago. They're over 100,000 employees now. It's a healthcare company in the Netherlands taking care of elderly people. And their narrative is autonomy. They're all about giving people autonomy after a certain age. How do we do this? So they decided that they're not going to have a typical hierarchical structure. They're going to get organized in pods, localized pods of 10 to 15 people. That's how their teams are going to be. And so they restructure this and they structure this company to create, to let everyone have a say. Of course, not everybody wants to have a say. Some people, you know, and not everybody all the time. Some people sometimes want to take maybe the back seat for a while because they've got other things going on in their life. You have to understand these dynamics, but you have to open your mind to the fact that the best groups of people, the most sustainable, the most healthy human group of people work because there is a clear direction and everybody can participate. And they do this because they believe in a future, in a story that has not happened yet that I call a narrative. You, you need to realize that if your group doesn't have that, if you feel like your company is stuck, is slowing down, if you see your numbers going down, it might be because you don't have a good narrative anymore. What struck me as you were talking about them is when you said, you know, their narrative is autonomy. It's autonomy internally and externally, meaning they want to have autonomy for elderly people which is what the work that they do, 
but autonomy internally in terms of how they're structured and how their people get to show up and really show up as leaders and show up as participants versus this rigid hierarchy about all of those organizations that are paving the way. Literally from yesterday, I was on a sales call with, with a, a company. So to, uh, I can't say the name because they're not, they, they're not clients yet. They have given me authorization. But they're this company who's trying to work with brands that are more risk takers and trailblazers. And they say, we love these clients. We've got everything for them that will make them even more successful. And they're right. They've got a really great service offering. Problem is that they don't understand their culture. Their narrative is not on the same page. My potential client's narrative is a lot more about control, risk adversity, showing up, you know, as very tight, very rigid kind of corporate culture organization. And as a result, the, the services that they put on the market, they're not innovative anymore. This company comes to me because they're being commoditized. They're seeing their sales slow down. They're pulled in, into work that they, they see much more modern competitors, much more attuned to what's going on in the environment, in the culture do much better than them. So it doesn't match anymore. The outside and the inside don't communicate together anymore. When you don't have that alignment, I think about with an organization, but I even think about like as an individual, we all are learning, growing, evolving human beings. And when there's that disconnect of who we are on the inside and what we're portraying or conveying on the outside, we're wearing masks, we're putting on armor, we're not having that authenticity. It, it goes both ways on an individual and a collective organizational level. For sure. So I think one of the things that struck me when you and I were talking before this as well, and again, going back to language and with what you've been sharing is you talk about that we have to really rewire the way we think about things, whether it's you know story versus narrative and how we go about stuff by shifting the words that we use. And so you've given a lot of really good examples. And so I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit about how people should be thinking about the words that they use when they are looking at both their stories and narratives to keep in mind. The big trap here is because we're talking the same language, like we're both thinking English. We, we think we understand each other, right? But there is another layer of what a language is. We put different definitions, be different stories behind this word. I think that in a narrative world, which is where I try to take people, words should be very much about the emotion that you're trying to convey. They should be very simple and they should relate to four different types of participants. We all think about a narrative for our customers. We are here for our customers. The customer is the king. We're here to sell. We're here to, to innovate. And so that's the common thing we tend to think about first. And that's, to me, that's only 25% of how you build a strategic narrative. So that's a good one. But when I take people to my workshops, to my engagements, I tend to say, can we just wait a little bit until we talk about this one? Because there are three others that need different kinds of language and different kinds of words. The first one I start with is you as an individual. And I ask the, the founders of the company if, if they're still around or the CEO or, or whoever is orchestrating this group here, why did you start this company or why did you join this company? What does this company represent to you? And so we go into the origin stories of people. So the language here has to be a lot more personal. It's about you. It's about me. It's more authentic. It's more about personal experiences that I have lived, that I have experienced, right? So that's the first one. 
The second one is about the community. So the word that should you should really have in mind is we, we together. What can we do together? There are many problems ahead of us on the planet that will require all of us to take a look at it and, and resolve them. So in the narrative, where does the word we show up? And very often time, we realize that, well, it doesn't show up very often. It's either you or I. The word we is the key word for how we craft the narrative around the community. So I have prompts, I have exercises, I have things that I try to poke at and, and, and you know, challenge people to think about. And one of them is to start a sentence with, together, we will dot, dot, dot. So maybe you put in your cause or your mission or whatever you want here that is future, long-term, aspirational. Because if we don't do this, this is what's going to happen. These are the stakes. Like if we don't act today, this is what in our community we will start seeing. And maybe it's something negative, maybe it's something positive you decide, but that's the framework to think about the language here in this quadrant. And I want to piggyback on that because if if anybody listening, if you have not downloaded the Corn Ferry 2020 Future of Work Trends report, one of the big things they talk about is a fundamental shift. And they talk about the fundamental shift of the power shift in organizations from a me to a we. And that when we look at um, beyond corporate social responsibility, when we look at ESG strategies, but it's really about the power being in you know some elite hierarchy to it's really the power of we and even feeding into the great resignation. So there's even more data coming out saying that that shift that you've been working with for years is like an essential pivot that businesses need to be thinking about. So I just want to throw that out there because I just read that the other week and I was like, oh my gosh. And so it's just, it's another source to really look at. No kidding. This isn't just Guillaume saying this. Like This is Corn Fairy and others. Thank you so much for the reference. I will look at it. I didn't know about this report. Uh, but yet another proof that this is something business people should really take a look at. The third, because I, I talked about four quadrants and 25%. So people are probably thinking, what's the, what's the fourth one? Well, obviously, it's your team and, and it's the internal and collective facet of your narrative. Under this chapter here is something that we hear all the time. What are your values? What is your culture about? What are your principles? Companies will write a manifesto sometimes. I think you, in one of your previous episodes, you have one of your guests talking about a beautiful example of a manifesto. I do some work with Google and here in Seattle, I go to their office. And the first thing you see in the, in the hallway when with pre-COVID, I started working with them is... I, I may misquote a little bit, but in essence, it's follow the users and the rest will follow. It's one of their 10 commandments that they call 10 things we believe to be true. They wrote this when the company started. Obviously, you know, the number of products, the number of things and the size of Google is just dramatically different now, but it's still something they live by. And so I'd like to call everyone listening to this podcast to just take maybe an hour and write down what are the 10 things you believe to be true in your organizations. And so if you ask me in terms of language here to your initial question, it's like, we believe that dot, 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 one through three, five, maybe you have 10, I have 15. <laughs> I only put 10 in my ebook that I shared with you. But these are essential elements that help you guide, not just how you behave, but also how you make decisions. You know, having a manifesto is great. But again, to our previous point, if you don't use it daily on the decision-making processes, then it's no point. So speaking of stories and authenticity, I want to shift gears to a question that I ask all of my guests that I'm dying to hear from you, Guillaume, is 
one of the things I know that is common for our human experience, no matter how successful we've been, no matter what country we were born and grew up in, is that it is human for us to tell ourselves stories that keep us safe and small, that are self-limiting, that we use to kind of hide out, that keeps us from showing up as a leader. So what is a self-limiting story that you still tell yourself sometimes? And when it shows up, how do you move beyond it so that you can still show up as a leader in your life? So a story I heard in many forms is my parents telling me that I should have a perfect life, you know, perfect grades if I want to be successful. I heard that story repeated to me different times, different ways with different examples. I can still, I can remember maybe a handful of very key ones. And it was all good intents for my parents. I have wonderful parents who wanted the best for me. But what this does is that it limits my ability to accept the messiness of life and to go faster and to take risk. And so when it shows up, I remind myself that if I want to have the, the life I want to be, I have to accept to not be so perfect <laughs> and just live in the moment a little more. Embrace the messiness, live in the moment. That's fantastic. So thank you for that. I want to transition to our quick questions segment, if you're game for it. I hope I studied for this quiz. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Don't overthink it. Okay. Fill in the blank. Living authentically is? Saying the truth that I'm afraid to say. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? I tend to go uh, look for people who can do it. So I still do something, but maybe it's not me, the leader. I, I go find people who are better at solving the problem than me or who are available, who, who, who don't even think that they, are, they could do it. But I, I kind of go in call them to action. I love that. Leveraging collective wisdom and talents around you. That's fantastic. What is something that people would be surprised to know about you? My age. <laughs> what do they think? You're older or younger than you are? They think I'm, I'm younger. Oh, hey, well, that's good. You have that youthful glow. That's fantastic. What is your favorite go-to movie? Oh gosh, there's so many, but one, okay, it's a French movie, first of all. So it's uh, in French, in English, it might be translated as itinerary of a spoiled child. And it's uh, with um, Jean-Paul Belmondo, who died last year. And it's the story of a successful entrepreneur in his 50s who abandons his loved one in his life and goes somewhere. I'm, I'm not going to spoil the, the end. And he finds a new narrative for himself. And he finds that uh, his journey is not as um, predictable as he thought. That sounds awesome. It, hopefully it has English subtitles. So those of us who don't speak French can understand <laughs> it. Look it up. Itinerary of a Spoiled Child. It's a great movie. What's your go-to song? John Baptist Cry on the one of his latest album, We Are, came out last year. It's a rally cry. It's, it's a narrative. It, it's there to mobilize people. I love it. I'm going to have to go check it out. Music just can move you for sure. What's something you can't live without? Friends. And what's something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy? Chocolate. Any kind. I grew up, uh, my aunt had a small patisserie chocolate factory, so I just can't live without it. <laughs> nice, nice. And what is something that you are grateful for right now? It's someone I'm grateful for. It's my wife. She's just so patient with me and she puts up with so much with my ideas and my entrepreneurial journey that she, she's number one. 
That's awesome. Before we go to our closing question, I just want to say, like, I could talk to you for such a long time and it's been such pleasure even leading up to this conversation. And I really appreciate the distinction for me of, again, thinking about the relationship between story and narrative, thinking about the key differences. Like, it's just really been eye-opening for me as I think about the work that we do. So I'm hoping that our, our listeners feel the same way. So just thank you for what you're doing. And I think it's awesome. So I want to close with, if you could challenge leaders everywhere to practice this one behavior that would create more human workplaces and equip everyone to be able to show up as a leader, what would that be? I would call it radical transparency. Most people think they do it. To me, it's different from being just genuine or honest at an individual. It's transparency as a company, as a group. Are we really willing to disclose how we make the products we sell? Are we willing to disclose who we work with, how we work with, for the true intents that we actually work with? What's our true impact outside? Are we really transparent about the difference we want to make? Are we really genuine about it? I think if more companies really practice this, we would see so much more tension disappear within companies. And we also probably realize that some companies should not even exist. And so this is a little thought-provoking here, but I really mean it. Because if you run a company and you feel like this is not a transparent place, Maybe it's time for you to shut down, release the talent that you're holding there and help them find a better place to live, go, exist and contribute to humanity. I'm Rosie Ward and this is Show Up as a Leader. To learn more, head over to peopleforwardnetwork.com and of course, hit that follow button.